Hi, I'm Helen Avery with the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Financing Nature from GFI Hive. In this episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Leggett from the Bunloit and Beldorni Estates to talk about the nature restoration and carbon sequestration work happening there and how it's attracting investors. When I started in solar 20 years ago, hardly anyone believed that solar would ever be economic, much less what it is today. The difference now, today, the key point, there's virtually no opposition to the idea that this has to happen. Right at the beginning in natural capital, I'm convinced there is going to be a system change in um, economic rewards for land management. We are going to be rewarded for protecting nature more than we are rewarded, as we have been landowners historically, for destroying nature. And that's very exciting. And it means that, you know, we can be cautiously optimistic that remarkable things can be made to happen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me today to hear from our guest, Jeremy Leggett, who will be joining us momentarily. If you haven't heard of Jeremy and the work he's doing, who hasn't heard of Jeremy? (laughs) Uh, I will briefly fill you in before he shares himself in more detail. A long-term climate campaigner, Jeremy sold his solar firm and bought two estates in the north of Scotland with the mission of restoring the nature there, uh, increasing the carbon sequestration, um, engaging the communities and gathering and sharing the data from that restoration work to help other projects sort of follow in those footsteps and with the view of providing returns for private investors from that work to boot. So lots to discuss and let's get Jeremy on. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Um, how are you to start with? Good. A little cold in the highlands of Scotland, but that's to be expected. <laughs> yes. I'd be worrying if it wasn't that way in winter. Um, yeah. Before we dive into Bunloit rewilding and the restoration happening at the estate in Scotland and your vision um, around carbon sequestration, improved biodiversity, it would be great for those who don't know you um, who are listening to just hear about your own journey that resulted in you buying the estate and working to restore the land. So can you talk us through that? I believe you started your career as a teacher, is that right? Well, yeah, I was uh, on the faculty at the Royal School of Mines at Imperial College teaching earth history, enjoying myself hugely. But my research was on the geological history of the oceans. That's what introduced me to ancient climates and and the modern climate. And um, I got very worried early on in the piece in the 1980s. So I quit that world and and decided to work on climate change, which I've been doing ever since. I view myself as a climate campaigner, not as a businessman. Uh, But I think, you know, the business world is a great place to campaign. And so um, after I worked for Greenpeace, Uh, As the scientific director of the climate campaign, I then moved into green entrepreneurship, if you like, and set up a solar company, Solar Century, that was quite successful. That was sold at the end of last year to the state renewables company, Stackcraft. So that left me with a bit of cash to have another campaign. 
And I decided that that should be in the something completely different. So that's why I bought the two estates up here. And we're going to try and, you know, score some runs for carbon sequestration and biodiversity uplift, nature recovery. Wow. So what an interesting journey you've had. Um, maybe we'll talk about lessons learned from solar as as you're doing this work in nature a bit later. Um, but just out of interest here, what's that journey been like? I mean, if nature restoration entirely new to you, how have you found it? Well, I mean, solar was t- pretty much totally new to me when I started. And, uh, you know, I learned early on that the key to the puzzle is to hire people who are younger than you and smarter than you and sort of toss them balls to run with. And that's what I did with solar. <laughs> it's the same here. It reminds me so in so many ways of the early days of solar in that, you know, it's a real frontier. And we know we need it to go exponential. We need a whole new industry in nature recovery, or more exactly family of industries in nature recovery. And that all has to happen. Um, and so hopefully we'll, the Highlands Rewilding will be able to contribute to that in the same way that Solar Century did with solar. There's one big difference though, and crucially, when I started in solar 20 years ago, um, hardly anyone believed that solar would ever be economic, much less what it is today, which is, as you appreciate, the least expensive energy technology ever invented. Uh, And that's not me speaking, that's the International Energy Agency. The difference now, today, the key point There's virtually no opposition to the idea that this has to happen. And that's very exciting. And it means that, you know, we can be cautiously optimistic that remarkable things can be made to happen. I was just wondering how how that compares to where you think we are in natural capital. We're right at the beginning in natural capital. I mean, right now, uh, there is no economic reward system for biodiversity uplift or, or protecting biodiversity. Nothing. in uh, There's a bit in England, but not in Scotland. And um, But, of course, the good thing is both the, the governments in Westminster and, um, and Edinburgh have promised that they're going to change that. Uh, and there's going to be, I'm convinced there is going to be a system change in um, economic rewards for land management. We are going to be rewarded for tr- protecting nature more than we are rewarded as we have been landowners historically for destroying nature. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about Bundoy and then we'll come to Highlands Rewilding. Um, sure. So as you mentioned, uh, you bought Bundoy. It was a private shooting estate over 500 hectares. And since then, you've been seeking to understand how to maximise carbon sequestration on the land, improve the biodiversity with the view that it can become economically viable, um, nature restoration that is. So can you sort of talk us through how you've been doing that on Bunloyer? Well, basically for the last year, with quite a network of contractors and scientific researchers and universities, we've been measuring everything that moves and grows and, you know, quite a bit of stuff that doesn't move and grow uh, so that we can quantify in as granular uh, detail as we can, a baseline of carbon on the estate and biodiversity on the estate. And the the Bunloit land is is super useful for this because it's a fascinating and beautiful collage of very mixed habitats in a relatively small area. But so we've got this wonderful um, collection 
of scientific measurements. And for, uh, and I really commend our, our report. We published it, first report. We published it at the Glasgow Climate Summit, the natural capital of Bunloit. It's on our website, bunloit.com. Various folk have said to a senior Scottish government official said the other day, there is nothing like it in Scotland. And you and you think to yourself, well, crikey, um, that's gratifying and it's nice to hear and, and it encourages us to do more. But you, you also have to ask yourself, well, why? I mean, the first thing that has to happen um, if we're going to have this new regime of economic rewards is that people are going to have to be absolutely convinced that what they're dealing with is real, that the data is real, that nobody's cheating. And and so, you know, that the closer you can measure things and show people how to measure things reliably, um, the better it's all going to work. Mm. So we'll do a lot more of that, and not just on Bon Bunloit, but also Beldorni, and hopefully um, with, uh, with with investors coming into Highlands Rewilding, we'll be able to buy other tracts of land and expand what we're doing so that we're growing our contribution vertically, if you like, vertical scaling of the rewilding, and but also horizontally. So we will... We will work with other landowners to help them navigate their way through to the new uh, the new regime, if you see what I mean, and we can contribute that way as well. So you mentioned there that it's so unique and that several people have commented on that. Can you sort of talk us through what what does that mean? I mean, what have been the successes so far? Well, so if you if you take the carbon, we've we've measured in great detail what's going on in the peat bogs and the woodlands, and it. Even for someone like me who knows a bit about carbon historically, you know, it was a surprise. So we found by measuring the thickness of the peat, we can come to a figure for how much carbon's in the peat. And it's anything up to 10 times more. The peat is only 17% of the area of the estate. There's up to 10 times more carbon in that peat than there is in all the woodlands. And if you look at pictures of sunlight, it's woodland dominated. So... That's one interesting thing, but uh, slightly depressingly, the peat is not in a good state and it's emitting carbon, up to a thousand tons of carbon a year, and that would cancel out everything. So this green verdant place turns out to be a a, a source of carbon emissions, not a sink. Um, so that's a bit sobering, but on the other hand, it's um, you know we can we can deal with that. We know there are ways to do it. Cut down the the conifer plantations, the monoculture plantations, so that the peat can be exposed again and recover, and uh, that way it begins to turn into a carbon sink, not source. And then we can measure that as we go, and we'll do that with Scottish universities. We're already working very closely with teams of peat experts in Scottish universities. So that's one example. Uh, But in the woodlands, obviously, we've done lots of tree counting and everything else. And we do that both manually, which takes time, and but also with satellite techniques and drone techniques. So we're using multispectral analysis uh, from space. And then we're doing drone surveys, which is particularly interesting, because then you get a, you know, really granular measure of the carbon. And what we're finding there is that the systems that are in place at the moment, there's a thing called the woodland code, where you can get a bit of income from uh, planting trees and the like, but the assumptions made in the woodland code are hopelessly wrong and hopelessly out of date. 
So we'll be able to work with uh, government scientists to improve all that. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. And then, well, biodiversity, uh, you know, we, we, we've done a complete flora survey with um, Plant Life UK. We can design baskets of metrics for, Im- for improving the, the terrain and making it more biodiverse and measuring as we go going forward. Just listen to you, it's just it's so um, obvious how important these kind of pilots are in gathering data to help us build KPIs that we're that we need to be able to then cost things out. That's right. What for you has sort of been the biggest success and challenge so far? And I appreciate it's very early days for you. Uh, well, you know, I think the reception um, uh, it, the the work has got is so encouraging because you know it, it really means we're. We're on to something. So we're we're learning as we go. That's also thrilling. And we'll we'll share it, of course, and you know, help speed up the whole process of nature recovery that way. And to be honest, I'm sure the reception you've had is because you've been so inclusive and open with the data that you're having. And maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. But I wanted to sort of just shift on to the financing aspect, mm. sort of understanding. Mm. You know, as you say, you're a pioneer here and something that we think doesn't have sort of a, a, a commercial value at present, that could, mainly because we just can't put our finger on it. What are you thinking for, let's, let's say with Bunloit for the moment, are you thinking about selling the carbon? I, I gather there's, you know, rich, uh, revenue streams to come in from perhaps ecotourism. Yeah. Uh, so on the... Um the nature-based solution credits of carbon and biodiversity uplift, what we're able to do, we're very fortunate, we're able to wait before we do that. So we have, as things stand, we have no intention of selling anything to anybody for five years. And the reason for doing that is that, you know, that way we, we give ourselves breathing space to really nail down. These will be real increases in carbon, measurable, verifiable, and the same for biodiversity. And of course, within by five years, let's hope the governments have got their acts together and there is indeed a new regime for selling and trading these these emissions that's meaningful and it's not going to be used to you know, greenwash and say, oh, we're, we're stopping this carbon, therefore we can keep burning gas. No, you can't. And we're not selling you any carbon if you're going to say that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we wait five years? Uh, we're not getting any money from governments. The thing is that we've been lucky enough to bring equity into the exercise. So we've got a we've got a network of of investors who um, they want it to be economic. They absolutely we need it to be economic because how on earth are we ever going to persuade anyone else to go down this road unless it's um, ethically profitable? But they're also patient investors and they're brand congruent. They get it about what we're trying to do. And I'll be coy about, you know, how much money we've got at the moment. But, you know, when I tell you we're going to be able to operate a good professional team for uh, for five years before we get we we get into the market, you'll you'll see that we have the breathing space to do that. So equity is exciting because there's quite a large community of people, you know, affluent people, family offices, um, you know, the first institutions. We've got a mutual fund that's just invested in us, and so uh, equity's doing okay. Um, debt, debt is a different matter. Right now, there there is no 
proper commercial lending to a commercial rewilding nature recovery project that I know of in, in the UK. That's nuts, really, when you when you consider the gravity of the, the climate meltdown and biodiversity collapse. So there's a market failure there, because unless capital can be bought at scale to these enterprises, you know, we're never going to beat the climate crisis, ultimately, or much less fix the collapse in biodiversity. The equity investors you have, you mentioned family offices, um, this patient capital, um, it's really encouraging to hear that you think that there is a big community of that uh, pool of capital because I mean, well I'd be interested to hear what are they looking for when it comes to um, exact data on the kind of outcomes that are going to be delivered because I think what the banks struggle with is you know, what is good what what is good for nature when we all talk about nature positive what is good how can they measure their credit risk if we don't actually know that those outcomes can be delivered and even what those outcomes should be. So I'm really interested to, what are your investors okay with in that regard? They want me to succeed and they're going to be, you know, in the nicest possible way, um, making, you know, putting pressure on me to advise me and give me help in, in succeeding. So they absolutely, there's no question of philanthropy here. Uh, that's right. the key point. And, um, uh, but there is uh, a kind of, risk tolerance that is connected to an understanding of you know the gravity of the crisis we're trying to address through ethical profitability getting to ethical profitability the banks what you just said is true in in the case of natural capital but but don't forget we're buying the land that we're rewilding as well mm. and so sadly the value of that land you know, the asset, as the investor would say, is going up. You know, you can sit and do nothing and your assets are increasing in value. You know, if I if I were a bad guy, you know, that's what I do. I pretend to be rewilding and I do two parts of nothing. And I just sit on the land and in five years' time, um, you know, I'd, uh, I'd sell it all and uh, head off to the Bahamas in a yacht with a helicopter. Well, so on that, what what other really large barriers do you see that are holding back the development of nature markets and private finance flowing into nature recovery? Well, of course, I worry about um, leadership, political leadership, uh, and I, you know, I better not go into details. But as I look at the political furniture, um, yeah, that's a worry. So there, there is a worry that the policies that we need actually won't materialise because we're drowning in the squalor of modern politics and failure of leadership. Are there any particular policies you have in mind? Well, at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty simple. And, and to be fair to everyone involved, there isn't much doubt that there will be this sea change. I think the estate agencies are the biggest litmus test here. You know, these are people who have been selling large tracts of land, particularly in Scotland for years now, based on how many tons of grouse you can blast out of the sky. I mean, literally valuing the land in those terms. Um, but within the last uh, couple of years, they've, they've changed right round. Uh, it's been replaced by natural capital and the value of your carbon and your biodiversity. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's everything to play for. It's far, far, far from hopeless. And um, the, your question about what do we need, it's binary. We need to shift away from the things that have been ruinous for the land, like subsidies for putting sheep out on the hills, 
Uh, too many sheep, too many cattle, all the climate scientists tell us that. So the subsidies and ways of underpinning all that kind of ruinous uh, environmental approach in, in agriculture needs to be turned around to regenerative agriculture and woodlands where, where biodiversity can recover as well. Tell me if this isn't relevant, but I was just interested, you know, one of the theories of change that we have at the Institute mm. is that, you know, we host the Secretariat for the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Um, yeah. you know, the more corporates can disclose on their impact and dependencies on nature, the more likely they are to transition to nature positive, whatever we're calling nature positive is, through their supply chain, and that will mobilize a lot of investment. Are you engaging with corporates at all um, around your work? And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about how we might engage with them more on these themes. Well, yeah. I mean, after 20 years as a, a social entrepreneur, I, I, and before that as a campaigner, I've developed lots of contacts in the corporate world. Most of my investors, I have uh, at the current count, I have 49 investors. Most of those are business people. Now, they're investing in their own right as individuals and of course most of them are, are, are pretty affluent but they they come from the business world so there's a whole universe of progressive corporates i think some of them view themselves as being sort of individual pioneers on the frontier uh pathfinders leading the way for their institutions uh, a good few of them are financial industry professionals so you know they're obviously in the progressive camp and hoping that the institutions are going to come along behind them and so yes i've got great hopes of the of the corporate world well maybe let's talk about highlands rewilding next um so it's obviously not just the bunloy estate that you're working to restore there's a second estate could you sort of share us a bit more about Highlands Rewilding and the model you're exploring there, which I believe is crowdfunding? Have I got that right? Well, that's part of it. Um, aspirationally, uh, the, the fundraising so far has been crowdfunding. I mean, right. the, the 49 investors I have, I've, you know, that that's a small crowd. <laughs> and, and I've reached out. I'm allowed by the rules to reach out to rich people. I'm not allowed to reach out to ordinary citizens. Um, or, or anybody else it is nobody's allowed to reach out to ordinary citizens because there's such a scope for scamming. So um, that's what we hope to do through crowdfunding. And the reason why that's important is that, you know, we want a really broad shareholder base. Up here in Scotland, um, land inequality is a huge issue and land ownership is a huge issue. Half the country is owned by a couple of hundred people, you know. And um, if that continues, it's going to be a very divisive, it already is a very divisive thing for society. So we're hoping that the rewilding land that we own in Highlands Rewilding will be owned, co-owned by a whole lot more than 49 people. Um, and that's why we're trying to find a way to, to get to what, what the investors call the retail uh, crowdfunding market. So Highlands Rewilding is a scaling mechanism for, you know, so that we can contribute to the scaling of rewilding by buying more estates like Bunloyd. The second one's called Beldorney. So it's, it's a contribution to scaling. And what I'm hoping, well, actually, no, I know that this, that this sits quite comfortably with the Scottish government and many 
uh, players in in Scottish politics is you know it's a company it's not um, a community enterprise or a charity or anything like that it's a company trying to make an eth- ethical level of profitability but it will be a mass ownership company and uh, you know we'll try and ensure that it treads the frontiers of corporate responsibility in that regard as well as um, you know the mission that it has in nature recovery what do you think would help that model move forward? I know there's sort of discussions around social investment tax relief on some of these investments in the UK. What I love about the work you're doing is that, you know, everyone's quite worried that pe- certain people are going to make a lot of money of land appreciation and on top of that, the sale of carbon credits, and you're expanding it out. So there's almost like a democratization of this investment in natural capital. But what would really help that push, do you think? Well, um, governments could make it difficult for the big solo actors. You know, they could make it difficult for a dubious corporation to come along and buy a vast tract of Scotland and, you know, repair peat and grow trees and say, hey, we'll look at all this carbon we're saving. It's offsetting everything that and more that we put into the atmosphere from our brand new shiny gas Uh, production facility in Western Australia. You know, that is the kind of thing that is going to ruin us Mm. and the planet and make the future unlivable. And the companies are, you know, will do that. There there will be lots of attempted, there is a lot of attempted greenwash. They could make it difficult in different ways for those folk, and I hope they do. Um, But similarly, you know, for, for people who are trying to exercise the degree of democratization, like we are in Highlands through Wilding, um, you know, a little bit of help will go a long way in targeted government help. I, you know, I, one doesn't want to be holding out a hand for, for grants and all that sort of thing, but a little push here and a little push there will help enormously. And I come back to the, the issue of debt. Uh, for example, if we are successful in doing what we want to do and there's a there's a crowdfunding round and we have in place a rolling debt facility with a bank or a group of banks, be it uh, private or public, where, you know, that money's there and the banks have said, you know what, you raise equity for this and we will instantly uh, dish out debt to back it up at a, an appropriately low interest rate because after all, it's backed and secured at a 50% of whatever loan to value ratio on actual land assets. And then you get for a savvy equity investor, you you get a, a, a virtuous circle. That person would look at the existence of the debt facility and say, crikey, you know, um, if I put my money in here, um, they are targeting an ethical rate of return, and they've already got this debt lined up behind to, you know, provide the working capital that gives us space and time and and increases the chances of hitting targets. This is a good investment. Never mind about saving the planet. It's a good investment. Well, I hope some people listening to this podcast might be <laughs> within banks and um, and maybe reach out and explore that. That would be wonderful. Really? Just sort of wrapping up, I didn't want to sort of let you go without actually talking about. Um, the importance of community as these uh, yeah. as this is all happening. Can you sort of talk us about you know, some of the concerns you have, or how 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 you're approaching ensuring communities engaged? I know you've, you've you said yourself about your hiring from community. Like, how can we 
I feel like Scotland's doing a better job of this than England, I have to say, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But tell me what your thoughts are. Well, it's vital, you know, and, and it doesn't matter about Scotland or England. It's, you know, internationally. We're not going to solve these problems unless the full fighting ability of uh, local communities of whatever type um, is engaged. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. And we're doing the obvious things. We're reaching out left, right and center. Let me give you two, you know, quick snapshots of what we've been able to do these last few years. We spent the first year literally conferring before we did anything. The science we did was in the second year of our project. And, you know, we learned a lot and we, we talked to everyone from immediate neighbors all the way through to ministerial level in the Scottish government. So it depends what you, you know, you mean by community. But ultimately at Beldorney, for example, there is a very active local community, the Glass Community Association. I wrote to them. So we were flooded with feedback from the local community so much that you couldn't possibly deal with it yourself. And so uh, we invited everyone around to talk and there were some terrific outcomes. So not just, it's not about giving people jobs and that kind of paternalistic feudal, Mm. you know, have a job, have a a place to rent, you know, let's go back to feudalism. (laughs) (laughs) You need more than that, much more than that. And um, and a wonderful thing I'm super excited about in Beldorni is that there's a local community association called the Cabrac Trust. Uh, which is a charity, and they exist to sort of bring health back to the community, different ways, affordable housing. They looked at what we're planning for Beldorni, which is a lot of planting and regeneration. We're, we're going to try and uh, raise a, a so-called forest of, of hope, as the COP26 uh, Innovation Zone organisers dubbed it. And they said to, to us, well, why, why don't we just... Um, spread this up the valley and, and several landowners ha- expressed interest immediately in, in uh, playing the game with us. So it's gone from what we will be able to do at Beldorni to the first stages of what could be a corridor of planting and regeneration, uh, which is, you know, would be a wonderful thing to see happen. That's the kind of thing we need as we go forward if we're going to beat these existential threats of climate and it's community-led. Well, it sounds like you're you're on the right track and it's, it's really exciting. And I just wonder, before we let you go, is there anything we need to be aware of, anything coming up on the horizon? Well, uh, keep your fingers crossed for us on the crowdfunding. We can't use the big platforms. They don't want to play ball. Um, you know, it's a bit sort of novel and new dealing with a, an asset-backed proposition, which is what what the what rewilding is when you own the land that you're doing nature recovery on but we we're, we're optimistic of being able to crack that problem and so uh, the moment that we do we'll be go at reaching out on a on a as wide a front as we can I will look out for that indeed and we'll make sure that we post it up on the hive uh, when that happens um which I very much hope it happens when I think about trees for life and that uh, retail bond sold out in 48 hours Two million, so I imagine there'll be exactly. quite a lot of interest in what you're doing. Too. Yeah, I hope so. Brilliant. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been a real pleasure, and it's just very inspiring. And, and thank you. Okay, thanks for for your time. So that's all from us at Financing Nature today. Don't forget to check out the Hive www 
greenfinanceinstitute.co.uk forward slash GFI Hive. We've got some new case studies coming up this month, including the Southern Ohio Outcomes Model from Quantify Ventures that we talked about here just a couple of weeks ago, and also the Perennial Fund from Mad Ag in the US. Um, really interesting model uh, that we could learn a lot from in the UK as we're thinking about how to finance sustainable ag transition. You can sign up for our newsletter there on the GFI Hive site where you will get a monthly update of new case studies and news and resources. So make sure you do that. I'll be back next week with Sonia Lichtman of Federated Hermes to talk about CBD, COP15, what is nature positive, as well as hearing about how Federated Hermes is viewing nature. Until then, it just remains for me to say thank you so much for listening and your support. Thank you also to our Financing Nature funders, the Esme Fairbairn Foundation, and to our podcast editor, Robin Lieburn of Fairly Media. Hope you have a great week. <laughs>